Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Tim Stein, your host for New Books and Mathematics. Our guest today is Andrew Elliott, the author of Is That a Big Number? Is That a Big Number is a book for those of us who feast on numbers. We'll absolutely adore it, but we'll also tease the palates of those for whom numbers have been previously somewhat distasteful. This book helps us not only realize the relative magnitudes of many of the numbers which surround us, but also helps us understand precisely how and why our understanding of the universe often comes down to the numbers which describe it. It's just a shame that Pythagoras, who was reputed to say that all is number, isn't around to appreciate it. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me, Jim. It's a pleasure. You know, I like the quote from Philo Laus with which you introduced the book. What are some of the different ways to think about big numbers? Well, you know, Jim, when I was at school, we learned about numbers, uh, starting from the very smallest numbers. And we become familiar with numbers that go into the tens and into the hundreds and sometimes into the thousands. Um, but we really don't become comfortable with numbers that are much bigger than that. Now, of course, some people, um, I count myself among these, which have studied science and have learned scientific notation for numbers and learned to deal with very big numbers indeed. But the, when you use those kind of numbers, you're really dealing with them via algorithms, via techniques and tricks. And we don't, I think, have a feel for numbers. Once they get much beyond a 1,000 or so, I think we all struggle um, with numbers along those, those lines. And so we need some sort of strategy for dealing with numbers as we go along. And in the book, I try to explain um, or group the strategies into five different particular techniques. And I'm sure we'll cover some of those as as we talk uh, through today. I'm looking forward to it. You know, one of the things that's happening in the United States at the moment is we're having elections and elections prompt conspiracy theories. And I was intrigued by the fact that your book sort of started off discussing uh, conspiracy theories, and what would be a good example of how a numerical comparison could prompt a conspiracy theory? Well, yes. Um, as part of the um, project um, that this book prompts part of, I started building up a database of, of numbers, and this went up, up into the thousands of, of, of number facts, as I call them. And it's no um, surprise that some of these start having some relationship to, to one another just by just by coincidence. It's no more significant than when Mars aligns with Jupiter in the night sky. Um, but, for example, um, to quote a, a rather silly but amusing one, I think, is that the height of the Empire State Building, if you measure it in terms of the standard square post-it notes, you'll find that it's exactly 5,000 post-it notes high. Now, I don't imagine anybody's going to build a conspiracy theory around that one, but there are um, other examples. For example that the, um, the height of the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt is almost exactly one ten millionth of the diameter of the sun. Now, when you've got so many numbers, it's bound to be the case that some of them tie up, and I think that there's plenty of, um, it's, it's not so difficult for conspiracy theorists to pull some numbers together and to start to try and, and, and make something of that. But, but really, um, the, in, these, these um, co- comparisons, these coincidences are included in the book, really to help you to think about numbers. It almost forms a triangle. You've got two numbers, two quantities, and a relationship between them, and that triangle helps you see um, the magnitude of the numbers involved. So a more serious example, for example, would be that um, the earliest stone axe um, from about 2.6 million years ago is about 500 times older than the oldest writing. So it's just that triangle of a one point, you've got the 2.6 million years ago, 5,200 years ago, the first writing, and a relationship of 500 between them helps you establish a scale between those numbers in your mind. You know, one of the things that I liked about your book is that you have a concept called landmark numbers. Perhaps you could explain those. Yes, um, 
this is, I mean, the, the analogy is with wandering in the, in the countryside and knowing where you are by the fact that there are certain landmarks that you can see and recognize. And for myself, certainly, that there are certain numbers that I know. I've not sat down and studied these numbers or learned them. But, for example, that you, you come across them and they lodge in your brain. So, for example, the length of the equator, the circumference of the Earth, is just about 40,000 kilometers. Now, that's a number that once you know that, you can start drawing comparisons. So, for example, you might learn that Australia is 4,000 kilometers from east to west. Now, that's a tenth of the equator. And Africa from north to south is 8,000, more or less, kilometers from north to south. And so these numbers help you form a realistic picture. And it's once these numbers start connecting with each other, you start forming, if I think of it as a scaffolding for the knowledge that you then acquire. And sometimes the number fits, and sometimes the number doesn't fit. And if it doesn't fit, you question it, and you see what, where, where something is wrong. If it fits, you add it to your scaffold, and you start building up a numerate worldview that helps you in understanding the next numbers that then come along. Um, in talking about next numbers, um, how do estimation and comparison enable us to cope with numerical in information? Well, I think, as I, mean, uh, uh, as I said, if you build a mental model of the world, uh, the new information comes along and it finds its place or it's hard to assimilate. So, for example, I might um, tell you or you might read somewhere that, uh, let's take an example, Morocco has a population of around 50 million people. Now, without context, that means very little. The 50, uh, 30 million people is a big number, and it's not easy for us to relate to that, 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 that naturally. But if I tell you that that's about half as many people as there are in the United Kingdom, or it's about a tenth of the population of the United States, then suddenly you've got a reference point, you've got a comparison, and that helps you to assimilate that number and also to, to, to make it more memorable for you. Yeah, I think that's right. And one of the things that you discussed, which was a concept that was introduced maybe 30 years ago, um, what is a numeracy and what isn't a numeracy? Well, I, um, to my mind, the key concept here is whether or not you can relate those, the numbers to, to the real world. So I make the point in the book, it's very much not a book of mathematics. It's a book about numbers, and it's a book about numeracy, and that means connecting the abstractness of mathematics, if you like, the abstract concept of number, to the real world. And so that gives you a scale, it gives you a shape, it lets you understand the world that you're dealing with, but it allows you to judge the scale of the problems the world is facing. Um, um, it's also to make the, to, to tell you what, what what numeracy is not. I don't think it's arithmetic. It's not being able to do hard sums very quickly. It's more understanding more or less how big things are, or being able to form a, a coherent picture of the world. I think that's a nice way to put it. But when I was reading this, it occurred to me that numeracy and literacy are somehow related and perhaps you could you know perhaps you could expound on this <laughs> that's one of my my favorite topics really um, Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know we don't have um circuitry in our brain you've got you know organic matter up there this has not been um crafted to deal with numbers we've got very rudimentary numerical skills but how have we been able to develop the massively technological culture that we have? And the answer, to my mind, is that we've relied on skills to do with literacy. So there's a phrase that I use in the book, which is that counting is singing. When a small child learns to count, they learn a sequence of words that they repeat. And that's not so different from learning a nursery rhyme or learning the months of the year or the days of the week. They learn the sequence and then they carry out a matching procedure. And so the, 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 the literate skill of learning words becomes part of the numerate skill of counting. Um, and, you know, for example, I love it that sometimes we find that the words that we use conceal 
some hidden truths. So, for example, who is the person who will count up the money in the bank? It's the teller. And what does a storyteller do? Well, they recount the tales. So between the tellers and the counters and the tales and the tallies and the counts and the accounts, these are all entangled. These are all part of the same thing. It's all part of human culture and numeracy and literacy work hand in glove to, 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 to get to this point. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, stuck with me over the years is that there was an experiment performed long ago, well, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, in which people were asked to imagine that a stick was a billion long and to mark where a million lay on it. And a lot yes. of them marked somewhere in the middle or something like that. And that's yes. clearly a numeracy problem. And so one of the things that you did was you have numbers that are fairly large. And um, you talk about the idea of visualizing a thousand, a million, and a billion. And I'd like you to go into that. Yeah, sure. Um, I, so I take an example, and I ask the, the reader to imagine a, a tiny ant, just just four millimeters long, sort of, um, much less than an inch. Um, and that's just, we're going to have to we, we take such a small thing because we're going to get pretty big, um, and we need to start small. And then I ask you to imagine what would something that would be a thousand times bigger than that. And I say it's a beetle. And what kind of a beetle is it? Of course, it's a Volkswagen beetle. <laughs> it's a car which is just about four meters long. So you can paint a picture now. You can imagine the car and you can imagine a thousand ants lined up alongside it. So that's step one. So now I'm going to look for something that's a thousand times longer than that Volkswagen Beetle. And wouldn't you know, it's Central Park in New York City is just about right for our purposes. It's four kilometers long, 4,000 meters long, and it's laid out over 50 uh, numbered streets. So we can even work out that calculation and see that there's 80 meters per uh, city block, and you could put 20 um, of those um, Volkswagen Beetles on each city block, and you can imagine a traffic jam along Central Park West, a thousand Beetles long. And if you still got the ants in your mind, you might be imagining that there would be ants alongside those, and there'd be a million of them. So far, so good. So where do we go from here? What's a thousand times bigger than Central Park? Well, I've already mentioned it in, in, in this chat. Um, Australia, from east to west, is just about right. It's 4,000 kilometers from east to west. So if you can imagine the whole country of Australia, that would accommodate a 1,000 central parks from coast to coast. And those 1,000 central parks, you can imagine a queue of a million uh, Volkswagen Beetles lined up against them. And next to those cars, you would have to have a billion ants to make that chain across. So that's the, that's the scale we're dealing with here. I, I think that's a nice way to look at it, but we have a million cars in Los Angeles on rush hour in a very short uh, period of a very short space. So as I know from commuting. Anyway, uh, one of the things that you also talk about is the idea about thinking in two and three dimensions to help us visualize numbers. Yes, I mean, this has almost become a, um, a mental tick for me in a funny way, that if I see a big number, um, so for example, if we're thinking in terms of um, somebody says there's, um, oh, I, what did I come across, the, the, um, <laughs> the number of a million, I will immediately in my mind convert that into 100 by 100 by 100 and imagine it as a cube. 100 in each dimension, because that brings the big number of a million back down into a comfort zone of 100 by 100 by 100. And it helps you to visualize it. It helps you to deal with the number. It helps you to, in a sense, tame that number so it becomes easier to, to, to think about. Yeah, those are good ways to deal with it. And you also bring things down to the human scale when you talk about that there are some aspects of the human body we can use to help us visualize large numbers. Yeah, it's, you know, it's fascinating um, that 
there's a lot in the book about, if you like, the history of measurement and what could be more natural than for the earliest measurements of distance and size to be based on the human body. So we've got the foot, obviously, um, but also people measure horses in hands. And we have the Bible referencing the cubit, which is the length of the forearm. And the word fathom, which is a fairly archaic word, most of us don't even know what a fathom means. But if you remember that it, or if you know that it comes from a, the derivation of it, is arms outstretched, then it's easy to remember that it's six foot. And so from the earliest times, people have used the parts of the body as the basis of measuring um, measuring distances. And, of course, it goes beyond that, because when you start looking for bigger numbers, you start thinking about what you can do in a given time. So the Romans introduced the concept of a mile, a thousand paces, um, and we have the distance of a furlong, which is a furrow's length. That's where the word comes from. Um, and the old English measure of a league, which is three miles, which is as much as you can walk in an hour. So all of these numbers come from things that are very natural and very human, very much part of human life. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I enjoyed about reading your book, because I'm a number fan, is that there are a lot of gee whiz, fascinating numerical tidbits scattered throughout your book. Do you have any personal favorites? <laughs> yeah, lots of them. <laughs> okay, just a few. <laughs> we want to get to other uh, topics here. I, I, I like, for example, that when I discovered that the diameter of the rings of Saturn, which is, you know, uh, that sort of iconic planet, is twice the diameter of Jupiter. And that's just a figure that, you know, will stick in one's head. Um, and that's about a fifth of the diameter of the sun. Um, here's another one. Um, that the Las Vegas um, Strip is around 6.8 kilometers, and that's almost exactly one thousandth of the length of the Nile River. Now, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean anything that that's that that's that it's that length, but it will help. It helps one remember it. It, helps it one certainly makes me scale. realize why they built the Luxor Luxor in <laughs> <laughs> the resort in Las Vegas, at which I've stayed, which resembles Egypt and actually has a pyramid in it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I, I'm sure they didn't have that in mind at the time, but but yeah, it, it, it helps one remember. It helps one um, fix these things in mind. It helps one understand the shape of the world. Well, because you feel that this these ideas have helped you, would you advise that people find a few of their own that they can use as numerical benchmarks, or just look through your book and get some good ones? Well, looking through the book is great too. But um, if yes. nothing else, it gets them to buy the book. <laughs> Yeah, of, of, of course. Um, but yes, I mean, when you see a number, you try and relate it to stuff that, that, you, that you know about. And sometimes you will find that it, 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 it chimes with you and that it makes a, makes a nice and memorable comparison there. And if you can hang on to that, then that can be, you know, the starting point for the next step and the next step and the next step. And slowly you build this network of numbers in your mind. Um, how does breaking a big number into smaller pieces help us come to grips with its size? Because what you've done is you've done sort of logarithmic comparisons so far and also area and volume comparisons. But breaking a big number up into smaller ones is a different type of process. Yeah. Um, I actually, in the book, I describe a, a, a situation. We visited um, an ancient Greek amphitheater on the island of Sicily. And you go there and you think, how many people could this accommodate? How many people could be sitting here? And luckily, they've arranged it so that it's actually broken into seven segments. So we can say, okay, we can make a first judgment on how many people could sit in one of these segments. Um, and then multiply up, of course. But then we can count the number of rows. We can say there are probably around about 35 rows or something like that in each of these segments, okay, how many people could sit on each row? In the front, they're going to be shorter rows. In the back, they're going to be longer rows. But we can work out an average. And then you've got three numbers to deal with. You've got how many people could sit in a row, how many rows are there, how many segments are there. And we come out at a number which is a bit over 5,000 people. But we've got there in easy steps. So you've got to the big number by easy steps. Yeah, but it doesn't hurt to know the multiplication table. 
<laughs> absolutely, absolutely right. I have to say that the favorite, my favorite portion of your book was the one where you discussed some of the key landmark numbers in the history of the universe, because I felt it was more than a nice summer. It was a nice summary of history. And I'd never seen history, which quite frankly bores me a lot, presented in that way. And I just loved it. Maybe you'd like to go through some of the numbers that are involved in the history of the universe and the history of Earth, of man's existence on Earth and recorded history, because I just love that chapter. Yeah, that's you know, in some ways, these are some of the hardest numbers to get a grip on because we can visualize distance quite easily, but 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 time is is is, is a different factor in a funny way, um, and it's it's the history of the Earth has well, it's a very long time, um, and the first one to, to realize is that compared to the age of the universe, which is about thirteen and a half billion years. The Earth has been around for about a third of that, which in some ways is surprisingly large. So for a third of the whole time that the universe has been around, the Earth has been around. Um, but then it comes down to really thinking about the history of life on Earth. And you need to think that you know while some simple life forms emerge relatively soon, but the big evolution of, of large-scale animals came with the Cambrian explosion, and that was only 500 million years ago. So there was 4 billion years of sort of building up to, to, to having visible life on, on Earth. Um, and some other landmarks that you could think about there is that there a, was a, a mass extinction around 250 million years ago, and the vast majority of species on Earth disappeared. Now, this was before the dinosaurs. So the dinosaurs evolved after that mass extinction, and, of course, they themselves um, were victims of a mass extinction around 66 million years ago. Um, and so to try and present and get an idea of, of the vast amounts of time involved here is really quite, quite challenging. And I'm, I'm glad that you found something of use in that chapter. Oh, I thought it was a lovely chapter. And one of the things that, you know, sticking on this topic for a moment, um, there's a fairly well-known comparison in which what they do is they squish the history of the universe into a single day. And it's sort of interesting to note that the appearance of man is at about 11.59.59 p.m., one second before the clock strikes midnight. And that's If I had a landmark number, that's the one that sticks with me. That, 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 that's quite right. Um, and the, uh, sort of a, a counterpoint to that, in a way, is the, is the idea that the whole of human history, which is only about 5,000 years, is one billionth of the lifetime of the Earth. And these comparisons are, you know, these comparisons are just wonderful because they're the type of things because they come from different areas of, you know, different ways of comparing numbers using area, using time, using uh, using length that sort of ties numbers together with the reality that numbers are used to measure the quantities that mark our existence. And that's one of the features that I liked about your book is that it wasn't it you know, it wasn't arithmetic, it wasn't algebra. It was basically numbers. And I'd never seen a book like that and I just loved it. Good. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, um, and one of the things, you know, you write a lot about, you know, you put a lot, uh, I won't say you put a lot of emphasis in, but a number of your examples deal with land areas. And what caught your attention when you were writing about land areas? I suppose one of the things that, that struck me most forcefully was that the sizes of countries is such a skewed distribution. In other words, the very largest country in the world is Russia, 17 million square kilometers. And that's just about twice as big as the next. Um, so then we get Canada, we get China, we get the United States. A little bit smaller than that, we get Brazil and Australia. But those big ones, those big six, really outrank most of the countries in the world um, for, for, for size. Then you get a tail starting with India and so on, it goes down. And it just seemed to be so strange in a way that, so for example, if you, um, if your listeners have some statistics, they'll know the distinction between the median, um, size of, of something and the, and the mean size. So the median 
would be the one that sits in the middle. That the, there is many bigger than this thing than there are smaller. So Croatia as a country is very close to the median size. There is many countries bigger than Croatia as they are smaller. But Croatia is about one-tenth of the average size of countries. So if you're thinking what is a typical country in the world, it's a small country. And when I haven't really even thought through the implications of so I'm still digesting this thought. Um, as to what it means in terms of politics, in terms of, of global relations and so on, that actually the world is dominated by some big countries and then that there are loads and loads of smaller countries forming a tail of the distribution. And that's uh, not something that never particularly struck me before. Well, not only had that never struck you, but as you were talking about this, it just struck me uh, we're, uh, for the audience, we're discussing this on the day after the United States elections. The yes. same not only applies to land areas in the United States, but also populations of states in the United States and the yes. areas of the states in the United States. And it's probably a very similar distribution. Yes, yeah. Yes. Uh, and as a matter of fact, for those of us who like comparisons, that's sort of the idea of fractal in that the same pattern is repeated on different levels. Correct. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and for all we know, if we went into one of the states, we'd find the same about the counties. But that's actually not true. The counties are pretty much the same size. I don't know what it's like in England. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, what, uh, getting on to one of the next questions that I'd like to ask, which I'm glad that you sort of mentioned in the book, is that every so often there's a science fiction film about giant insects taking over the United States. There was a really <laughs> scary one in the 1950s called them. There was one in the 1990s. Um, but why are the giant insects so beloved of science fiction, and why are they impossible? Well, it comes down to what's, what's been called the square cube law. So what this means is that if you take something of a certain shape, it could be a, 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 a just a ball, or it could be an ant, and if you make that thing, if you multiply its length by a certain amount, then its surface area is going to go up by the square of that proportion, and the volume of it, and therefore the mass of it, is going to go up by the cube of that proportion. So take I've seen the posters for that film, Them, and I'd say those those ants are at least four meters long. They're as long as our Volkswagen beetles. <laughs> so if if you multiply them by a thousand in length, that means you've multiplied their surface area by a factor of a million, and they've multiplied their mass by a factor of a billion. Now, the strength of the limbs, as the, those, those, those skinny little legs, the strength of that is going to be related to the surface area, but the cross-sectional area of the, of the limb. But the weight that it has to bear is related to the volume. And so if you scale up according to the cube-square law, or the square-cube law, I should say, um, that means that suddenly the weight is now a thousand times too much for the limbs. And so those limbs would just snap, the skin would split, it would be a, a, an awful, uh, an awfully messy scene indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, well, I'm sure that many of our listeners are now going to sleep much easier at night. <laughs> anyway, uh, one of the things that you discuss are the ideas of rates and ratios. And I teach math and I often find students getting confused about those, but of course we just teach them as uh, as essentially tools, but you use them to compare numbers. And what are some good ways to compare using rates and ratios? Well, these are most useful where you're dealing with two um, items or populations or countries or whatever that are that you want to compare, but they're of themselves of different sizes. So, for example, if you were to take the... Um, the number of people, number of, of births in, let's say, the United States versus the United Kingdom, where I live, of course, there are going to be many more births in the United States because the population is five times the size than the United Kingdom. But if you divide the number of births by the population, you end up with a birth rate. And suddenly you've made things that were not comparable, you've made them comparable. And so now you find, in fact, the figures are very close to being the same in those two countries. Um, and you've done that by standardizing them 
to a, a, a common basis. And, and really, that's a, a very useful way of, of, of involving big numbers. The other, uh, of comparing big numbers. And the other, the other one that, that, that is, is very natural to do is to talk about things like growth rates. So you take the, um, the value of, of whatever you're measuring at, at one point in time and you compare it to what it was last year. So you might measure the growth in the economy or something along those lines and you can calculate the growth rate. And in a sense, what you're looking for there is the relative change is what's important rather than the absolute value of the thing. And you can compare, then compare growth rates across different countries and so on. Um, it's a way of standardizing things in a way that it allows you to, to, to compare them. Um, you know, another thing that I liked about your book is that you talk about some really large numbers and people, without using scientific notation, which generally bothers a lot of people. And I can still remember that my first introduction to billions came when a senator in the United States said, a billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. Well, now, we've got a, <laughs> yes. now we've got a national debt in the trillions. But... When you talk about landmark numbers for mass, you get even larger than that. And so maybe you can discuss a few of those. Uh, yes. Um, I'll take one example. Um, so, for example, one of, one of the things that we found out there is that if you take the volume of water in Lake Superior, for example, you find that that's 12,000 cubic kilometers. Now, that's a big number in itself. But each of those cubic kilometers is a billion cubic meters. It's a, th a thousand by a thousand by a thousand. And each of those cubic meters of water would weigh approximately a ton. So if we were to calculate out the total mass of the water in Lake Superior, we're getting to 12 quadrillion kilograms. And that's... Go ahead. I was just going to say... That's that 10 to the power of 15 to revert to the scientific notation. But, but the yes. great thing about that is that what you've done is, if you say quadrillion to somebody, it's basically meaningless. But yes. when you say that's the mass of all the water in Lake Superior, 10 quadrillion, um, yeah, now you've related a large number to something they, they can deal with. And I think that's an important part in fostering numeracy. Absolutely right. Um, then in the next chapter, you go on to a topic which you've termed very nicely. Um, what is number spotting and what does it have to do with Benford's law, which I've always considered fascinating? It is fascinating. Um, number spotting is actually the name I gave in my head to uh, a game that I used to play when I was a child. Um, growing up on long, boring car journeys, I would look at the number plates of these cars and I would try and spot successive numbers. So you'd start off by saying, can I spot a number starting with one? Then can I spot, see one starting with two, three, four? And so it goes. Once you get to nine, you're looking for a number that starts one, zero, then one, one, then one, two. So it gets harder and harder to play this game. And it's more of a challenge and it's more rewarding. When you spot 323, then you really, you know, <laughs> it feels like an it took achievement. took a while, didn't it? <laughs> exactly. But the interesting thing is, of course, it's harder to spot one zero than it is to spot one, but it's actually harder to spot nine than it is to spot one. And that's because numbers tend to start from one. And so you can't, if you've got, if you're allocating numbers sequentially, you can't have a nine without there being a one. And you can't have a two digit nine, you can't, which you'll hit at, 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 at 19 and then 90 without there being loads of numbers starting with one that have come before. So this was my, my game as a kid. But then I discovered that this is actually an example of um, what's called Benford's Law. And that means uh, that it says that if you take a collection of numbers, and you can, these can come from interesting and different places like company accounts, um, like voting records and so on, um, you'll find, and this is quite strange, that around 30% of those numbers will have a leading digit, which is one. And less and less until you've got only 4% of those numbers will start with nine. And in some ways, this seems quite strange because you'd expect them somehow to be even, but they're not. And people have actually used this Benford's law 
as a means of detecting fraud. If somebody is cooking the books and making up numbers to go into falsified company accounts, and if they're not aware of Benford's law, they may well, uh, say, have numbers starting with, with seven, which seems to be a popular one, much more frequently than would occur by chance. And auditors have actually used this, this, this law to pick up suspicious um, accounting um, in, 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 in audits. So, yes, it's, 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 a, it's a strange thing. Um, now, for, for this book and for the Is That a Big Number project, I collected a huge database of numbers, facts, and I tried to see if this would apply to these numbers. Now, these numbers come from everywhere. It's the uh, height of the Eiffel Tower. It's the water in, in Lake Superior. It's the, um, you know, the size of a playing card. They are from all different kinds of domain. And lo and behold, they fit Benford's law pretty well, pretty well. You know, you just mentioned something, which I'm not sure whether it's mentioned in the book, um, but you discussed something, uh, you just discussed something in the last few moments called the Is That a Big Number Project? Um, is that an actual project or is it just something you did? Is there a database with these numbers in? I don't want to distract, you know, I don't want to dissuade people from just looking at the database, and not reading the book, because the book itself is fascinating. But I'm sure that if there were a database like this, it would be a wonderful complement to the book. Yes, there's a website called isthatabignumber.com. That's exactly uh, the question that I wanted answered. <laughs> I may and, look uh, at it after this interview. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's got some fun things on it. And it's it's my source for the a lot of the numbers in the book. Um, good enough. Um, how are logarithmic scales used to compare numbers? Well, the thing about logarithmic scales, and some people get frightened by logarithms from, at school. Um, but I think they're like a little, uh, like a superpower of, of, of understanding numbers. Um, so if you have a situation where you've got some very small numbers and some very large numbers and you try and compare them in the normal way, it's very difficult because, because you can't say much about it other than that some are very small and some are very large. Um, so an example would have been, when a gentleman called Charles Richter was analyzing earthquakes, he knew that there were hundreds of earthquakes happening every day on a very small scale. But occasionally there would be something that was much, much bigger, millions of times bigger. And he realized that it wouldn't be very hard to put together a sensible way of measuring these things until he came up with the idea, actually it was a colleague of his who came up with the idea of using a logarithmic scale. And what that means is you Essentially, you're counting the powers of 10 involved. And so the, uh, on, a, on the, the Richter scale um, for measuring earthquakes, if you add one point to the scale, one point to the magnitude, it means you're 10 times larger. So if you go to 4 to 5, it's 10 times larger. 5 to 6, it's 10 times larger again. So 100 times larger in total. And so it brings these numbers down to um, a a manageable level. It, 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 it tames this exponential growth that you see in, in certain things, and it brings that down to a scale where they become easier to relate to. Um, I think at this stage I have to mention a classic in that area, uh, the video or movie called Powers of Ten by the Eames Brothers. You know that one? Yes, I do. Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a lovely way to visualize uh, the logarithmic scales, because it goes from the tiniest things in the universe to the biggest things in the universe. Exactly. And speaking of biggest things in the universe, could you describe the landmark numbers you use, which each differ from, by roughly two orders of magnitude, which is a power of 100, to go from the size of the universe to the size of the solar system? Because I found that a nice stepping stone bridge. <laughs> yes, yes. Um so if you're thinking about distance, obviously the you know the the biggest distance you can imagine is would be the the diameter of the observable universe. Um, now I'm going to come back the other way. Um, so let me. We started either end. Okay, let 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 let, let, let me see where I want to go from. <laughs> so if you start with the solar system. Um, it's probably know, more natural to go up than down, so go ahead. <laughs> we know that the um, 
that the Earth and all the planets orbiting the sun occupy only actually a very small proportion of this whole solar system. So to get to the point where the sun's gravity is no longer the dominant gravity, we could journey out from the sun about two light years. So we'll start from that, that point. So if you think of the solar system as being a sphere about four light years across, that's our starting point. Okay. But the, the, so, but the sun sits within a structure that astronomers have called the local bubble within our galaxy, and that's about 300 light years across. So it's about two orders of magnitude bigger. So when we get to these kinds of numbers, we're not terribly concerned about whether it's, uh, you know, 10% bigger or 10% smaller. We really are concerned about the orders of magnitude here. So our local bubble is about two orders of magnitude bigger than the solar system. Now, the galaxy, the Milky Way, is around 120,000 light years across, and that's about two and a half orders of magnitude bigger than the local bubble. So we're going in steps that are, roughly speaking, a hundred, a bit more than a hundred now to the size of the galaxy. Now, the galaxy, along with Andromeda and Triangulum and a couple of other things, is part of a local group of galaxies, and that's about 10 million light years across. And that's another hundredfold step, another two orders of magnitude bigger than the galaxy. And that sits within what's been called a supercluster, and ours has been called Laniakea. Um, and that's a supercluster of galaxies about 520 million light years across, almost another two orders of magnitude. And then to get from there to the observable size of the universe, it's around another two orders of magnitude. So hopefully what that does is it can cement in your brain, as it has in mine, um, a series of steps that you can take increasing in scale each step along the way that helps you I mean, this, these are unimaginably big numbers, and we need to think of techniques. We need to think of tricks to help us to think about these things and keep them, establish a scale between them. Um, it doesn't make them any smaller to think about it this way, but perhaps by breaking into steps, it becomes a little less overwhelming, uh, less of a sheer mystery, and more something that you can actually think about. Um, I'd like to jump ahead because we're getting a little, um, we got to some big numbers. So let's get to the really, really, really big ones. The ones that, um, the ones that basically enter into the idea of what arithmetic and the number system is. And this is connected to computation. And, um, what, how do we measure the difficulty of computing something? Yeah. Um, uh, when, People design algorithms when people are working with um, understanding how computation can happen. It's very important to understand the scale of the problem and in the terms of the jargon, how the problem scales. In other words, as the problem gets bigger, does the effort required to solve the problem get bigger by about the same amount or does it get bigger a lot faster? Now, there's a classic problem in this area called the traveling salesman's problem which is, ask you to imagine that there's a traveling salesman and he needs to arrange a, a journey to visit a number of cities to make his, his sales visits. And the question is, what is the most economic way of him to organize his trips to these, um, these cities? He's going to make one round trip, but which is the quickest way of doing it? Now, this is a problem that seems very trivial in in, 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 in in, in, in the way I've stated it, it's a very easy problem to understand. And you can understand that if he's got a home location, and he's got two cities to visit, then there's really only one trip he can make. He can do it either way, but there's only one possible um, trip that is sensible. But if he's got five other cities to visit, then suddenly he's got to make, there are 60 possible routes to evaluate. If there are 10 other cities to visit, there's 1.8 million to visit. And if it goes to 30 other cities to visit, we get to the unimaginably big number of 132 non-million. There's a word for you. Yeah, that word. <laughs> haven't seen that one much. <laughs> 10 to the 30. So the, 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 the point here is not that we are really trying to make things easier for traveling salesmen. But these are problems <laughs> that have to do with um, – there are lots of problems which are 
essentially the same as this problem. So it might be to do with um, programming machines to drill um, computer circuit boards. It may be anything that, array, uh, that is trying to optimize the order in which you are visiting and performing various tasks. And in all of these situations, once the problem gets to even relatively modest numbers in the problem, the solution becomes really, really very hard and beyond the scope of even the fastest computers to com compute. And so this is, the, I mean, these are serious challenges for people working in algorithm design and so on, is to bring down the order of complexity of these problems. And the problem is really just that the numbers get so big. And speaking of numbers getting so big, what is Graham's number? <laughs> Graham's number, um, I first came across this um, in, I had a copy of the Guinness Book of World Records from 1980, and it told me that it was the most massive, finite number ever used in a serious mathematical proof. Well, since then, there are bigger numbers, but Graham's number at that time was the biggest number that had ever been seriously put forward in a mathematical proof. Now, this number involves raising, um, taking powers of numbers an unimaginably large number of times. And it's very hard to even describe the recipe for calculating this number. It would be completely impossible to actually calculate it. The universe wouldn't have time nor materials to accommodate it. So I ask the question, is this even a number at all? And my answer to that is yes, it is. Because even though it's just an algorithm that we understand that could be used to generate the numbers, if I write down... 323 on a piece of paper, I've not written down a number. I've written down a series of symbols that will allow somebody else to recreate that number. It's just the same way. It's an algorithm that I've written down, and that um, is a recipe for creating the actual number. And no less is Graham's number a real number, even though we could not possibly write it down in digits. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, made a large impact on me in my youth was when I saw the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. I don't know whether or not you've seen it, but it was a classic. Of course. Movie. Okay, I think everybody has. And there's a scene at the very uh, towards the end of the movie where the spaceship has gone ha has gone out to Jupiter, and there is a caption which says Jupiter and beyond the infinite. Um, and uh, it's a good place to wrap up this interview by asking you where you stand on infinity being a big number. Well, yes. Um, I remember as, as, a, as a child, we used to joke and we used to talk about a number of, uh, we call it uncountable. And that was our schoolboy version of infinity. Um, and, but in, in, in fact, the, the great mathematician Cantor, he got to grips with this concept of infinity and he used exactly the same sort of matching logic that we would use for counting, you know, the apples in a bowl. And that is to say, if you can match two sets together, one for one, then they must have the same number. And so he was able to start categorizing different kinds of infinity and making sense of, of, of that whole concept. But And so he defined what are called transfinite numbers. And those are what we would loosely call infinity. Um, but of course... Infinity has no point, point on our number line. Infinity is, 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 is more of an end point of a process than it is of a particular number. So is it a big number in the sense of the book that I've written? No, it's not. It's in its own world. It's in its own collection of numbers. It's the transfinite numbers. And in fact, the number of all of the counting numbers is the smallest of those transfinite numbers, it's the smallest infinity. So I would say that it's in a, in a, in a, in a d different domain of its own. Well, we expect your next book to be as infinity a big number. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of next books, um, do you have any projects that uh, you'd like to tell us about and that I might be able to talk to you about sometime in the future? Well, there's a, there seems to be to be a, a natural... Um, a companion book to this one, which would be, is that a small number? <laughs> because there's an, awful, there's an awful lot of interest in, in things that are of microscopic scale or nano scale. 
But more than that, one of the things that I consciously left out of this book, um, and it is an area, I think, where people struggle in a, in, in a, in a numeracy sense, is the understanding of risk. And risk tends to be small numbers. It's, you know, the, the, the chance of winning the lottery. It's the chance of dying from, you know, some freak event and so on. People have difficulty in understanding risk and understanding small proportions. So I haven't yet got a shape for this book, but I, I think there might, there might be something there along the lines of is that a small number? Uh, and that's one of the things I'd want to tackle, tackle in that is, is, is talking about how, how we understand risk. You know, it's funny because when you said, uh, is that a small number, the first thing that leapt to my mind was Richard Feynman's quote when he gave a lecture at Caltech, I think it was in 1958, describing the possibility of uh, the possibility of what you might call nanophysics, doing physics at the small scale. And yep. he said, there's plenty of room at the bottom. That was his type. That was the title of his lecture. Yes. And yes. um, I was thinking you were going in that direction. And for all I know, maybe I've prompted a line of thought in you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, uh, also, the uh, last thing that I would like to ask you is if one of our listeners or hopefully lots of our listeners would like to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Okay. Well, there's a, there's a, as I mentioned, there's a website. Is that a big number dot com? Um, and there are links there to follow a Twitter feed. Um, they may be interested in that. Um, but equally, um, uh, there's a website, um, www.andrewcaelliot.com, which is my personal website, and there'll be a contact form on that website. So anybody wants to get in touch, they can use that contact form, and I'll get right back to them. Okay. Terrific. Andrew, it's been a pleasure. Take care. Thank you very much, Jim. <laughs>